Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Emigration has been one of the defining features of Irish life since the Great Hunger. Generation after generation have been drawn to the United States with the hope of finding a better life across the Atlantic. In several past episodes of this podcast, I've looked at the various ways Irish migrants found the reality of life in the US fell far short of their hopes and dreams. Now, over the last few years, however, a project in Queen's University, Belfast, the Bab Bridger Project, led by Dr. Elaine Farrell and Dr. Leanne McCormack, has focused specifically on the lives of the Irish women who saw their American dreams become a nightmare. These were people many, both in the US and back in Ireland, wanted to forget. Women who became sex workers, women who struggled as single parents, or, for one reason or another, fell foul of the US authorities and ended up in courts or prisons. Now, if the name of the project, Bad Bridget, does ring a bell, that's because you may already have come across Elaine and Leanne's work in their podcast called Bad Bridget. If you haven't already heard to it, it's really unmissable. You'll find links to it in the show notes below. But in today's episode, they join me to share some of the stories they uncovered in their research. If this is the first time tuning in to the podcast, my name is Finn Dwyer and this is the Irish History Podcast. Before we dive into today's episode, I just want to remind you that my exclusive series on the Irish Civil War continues over on Patreon, with part three coming out this week. The series is based around interviews with Dr. Brian Hanley from the History Department of Trinity College Dublin. Now in the third episode, we cover one of the most brutal phases of the war, which began in late 1922. And these were events that haunted Irish life for decades. Now as I've said, the series is only exclusively available for show supporters. So become a supporter today and get that series at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast podcast. Sound on the show is by Kate Dunley. To start our conversation, Elaine began by explaining the background to the Bad Bridget project. So Leanne had been researching Irish women and sexuality 
on the island of Ireland. And I had previously researched Irish women and crime. And we had both then independently started to look to see what were Irish women doing abroad. The expectation being that, you know, if they were getting up to this kind of deviant sexuality and criminality on in Ireland, well, they probably were doing the same after they migrated. And we got chatting and realized we were both doing looking at those kind of areas. And so we teamed up and applied for funding. And we were fortunate um, that we were successful um, in getting the funding, which enabled us then to go to archives and libraries in New York and Boston and in uh, Toronto as well. We used lots of different sources. So so, uh, we've got prison records in particular. So, you know, those big ledgers, big volumes of um, prison registers. Newspapers were great, although not all um, cases were reported in the newspapers. Census records then are birth records, you know, when you're trying to trace individuals and seeing where they ended up and what happened to them. While we'll hear about some of the forgotten lives Elaine and Leanne's research uncovered, I asked Elaine to provide some historical context to female emigration. She explains some of the more unusual aspects of Irish migration insofar as women actually outnumbered men leaving the country by the late 19th century. Yeah, so historian David Fitzpatrick, who's written loads on Irish emigration, He has identified that Irish migration was unique compared to other countries because so much of the population left across such a prolonged period of time. So the sheer number of girls and women involved in this migration um, makes Irish emigration even more remarkable. So just to give you an idea of the numbers there, one in three emigrants from Ireland was female in the 1820s. From around 1845, so when we're talking about the, the kind of famine period from, say, 1845 up to 1855, that this has increased to around one in two migrants um, being female. And then girls and women outnumber male migrants thereafter up until the 1920s, which again is very unusual in a migratory context. And Irish girls and women were also unusual compared to other immigrants heading to America because they were regularly unmarried when they left. Emigrants from other countries are typically traveling in family units. So they're traveling as wives or they're traveling as daughters. But Kevin Kenny has shown how just 16% of the Irish were married from the 1860s to the end of the 19th century. So, so it's very different for Ireland. For the Irish girls and women, then they're, they're traveling at a very young age. Now, we have found girls as young as seven who are traveling uh, to North America and traveling alone. Grace Neville has calculated that girls were Irish girls were on average 15 or 16 when they left Ireland which is younger than men who are around 19 or 20. That girl that I mentioned who who travelled alone, the the seven-year-old, she actually travelled twice because she crosses the Atlantic one way and then uh, she gets returned and back the other way. So we have many of them, you know, these these girls and women are leaving for a variety of reasons. You know, there's a lot of poverty, of course, and they're, they're escaping that poverty in Ireland. Some are using emigration as a means of escaping a, a bad relationship or just kind of bad circumstances. The expectation is that they're going to America to work. And that means that, you know, they really have to get a job very, very quickly. And of course, because of the, the sheer numbers um, that I've, I've mentioned, many have friends and relatives abroad. So we get then the, the chain migration. You know, they, they know somebody means they're a bit more confident in leaving Ireland in the, the kind of expectation they're going to be met on the other side. As the name of the project, Bad Bridget, implies, it focuses on women whose emigrant experience differed considerably from what they might have expected when they left Ireland. I asked Leanne to explain the term Bad Bridget. It wasn't chosen at random. 
It, or at least the term Bridget, had a specific historical meaning in the 19th and early 20th century. So Bridget was not only a very common Irish name during the 19th century, but it became a, a name that was used to refer to Irish women more generally, sort of as a group, particularly within, within North America. And you get Biddy being, being used as a sort of derogatory version of, of that, um, and often relating to Irish women in, in domestic service. And we sort of use it as a, as a term, I suppose, we, we chose the, the name both as a way to kind of try and reclaim the name and to kind of take it back from and to tell those stories that, that had been forgotten and hadn't been been told and to tell those broader experiences of Irish women in, in those, those contexts as well. One of the first bad Bridgets we discussed was a woman called Annie Young. Through her story, Elaine explained the often grinding poverty that was key to understanding why emigrants struggled in the US. Through child protection records, we can get a glimpse of living conditions because while these inspectors are agents, as they're called, they visit the homes of Irish immigrants to see about how the children are being treated. And then they inadvertently describe the living conditions that these Irish families have. So the records are telling of, you know, it's extreme poverty, sparsely furnished rooms, there's starvation. There, we see descriptions of clothing being stiff with dirt. One woman's cardigan is fastened with a nail. So that was obviously all that she had to hold the cardigan together. Uh, Mary Linsky, she was living in a house with her husband and three sons in Massachusetts. They were living without water. This was in 1908. Without water, they had burst pipes. And the, the pipes had burst so badly and the weather was so cold that the water had actually frozen on the stairs. There's no doors in the house, in this tenement at all. In her um, rooms, there's a dirty bed and a cot. There's three dishes in the house, one knife and one fork, and very little clothing other than what the family are wearing. So we're talking extreme poverty here. Another Irish woman, Bridget Donnelly, she said if she had known anything about married life, she would have remained single. Nine children are too many for any woman to bear. Six are too many to keep clothed and fed. So again, you know, that quote kind of highlights the demands on mothers. And we see that coming out quite strongly in the story of Annie Young. So she emigrated uh, from Sligo in the early 20th century and she married in the US. She had a son who died as an infant and then she had a daughter and she left her husband probably um, because of her because of his infidelity. Uh, but she doesn't say um, exactly why. So she's raising her daughter alone in Boston. And we see Annie crop up in society records because she's obviously trying to get help from different charitable organisations. But then in 1908, she's arrested for keeping a disorderly house in Boston. And this triggers the involvement of these child protection agents. And because she has the young daughter and they're concerned about that. So this investigation, it goes on for months and they, you know, they come and they inspect her house. And it eventually results in her toddler being taken away from her. And then later on, when inspectors visit again and they find Annie is drunk and potentially drugged as well. And so she's sent to prison for a year. And she serves her time and, and on release, then she goes back to these child protection agents and she says, you know, she's she's sailing back to Sligo now. She'd like to bring her daughter with her, but they refuse. And, you know, the records even say that say they made no attempt to try to, to get the daughter back to her. So Annie Young then sails home alone and the daughter is later adopted in Massachusetts. And we also came across a notice where where the daughter now is a grown woman puts an ad into a local newspaper to try to track down her birth mother. So 
I suppose where some of our stories, I suppose this story is less so because it doesn't seem like the mother and child ever um, reunited. But I think those kind of stories, it's still important because it gives us a glimpse of Annie Young's day-to-day life, her kind of survival strategies, her, her living conditions, and, and the very real struggles that were facing single Irish mothers in the US at that time. Now, faced with such poverty, it was inevitable that many Irish women turned to sex work Leanne shared the stories of Maud Merrill and Marion Canning. These two women had very different experiences. As you'll hear, Maud Merrill's case in particular illustrates the motivations for women getting into sex work could be more complex than we might imagine. Maud Merrill and, and Marion Canning are, were, are both, both lived in, in New York, but again, very contrasting experiences of sex work as well. Marion Canning was was living in Mulberry Street, which was a, a very poor area. It was sort of on the, the edge of, of five, the Five Points area. By this point, whenever she's there in the 18, early 1890s, it's it's part of Little Italy. She's living in a brothel in, a, in what we can see was a very violent area. There'd been several murders in the, the building that she lived in. And she's clearly from her story, we know that she was meeting men on the street and she was bringing them back to her, her home um, and we only really come across Marion Canning because she's arrested and charged with stealing from a client. And um, there's no evidence of her crime. Um, they, they, she's accused of stealing a watch and some money. And whenever she's taken to a police station, neither of those items are found on her. And we do only really learn about her story because her father back home in rural Leitrim is writing letters to, first of all, the judge in her case, and then the governor of New York trying to get to get her her released and pardoned. I mean, and this is very rare. It was it was very rare that that would happen and and, and rare and sort of hugely beneficial and for for Marion, who who was pardoned. The district attorney relooks at her case, finds that there's no real evidence of her having committed these crimes. Uh, and uh, she is she is released. And we know that she returned home home to, to Ireland. Maud Merrill is a sort of the other the other extreme um, of of working in, in sex work. Um, she was a woman who ended up in a in a very high class brothel. She'd been a domestic servant, and she she'd made a choice to move from that occupation into sex work, clearly because obviously really prompted often by the the economics. Um, her sister really wants her to leave and to to leave the leave the the profession. And Maud's sort of saying maybe after Christmas, you know, I can't leave just now. There's no opportunity. And we see descriptions of where she lives of luxurious furnishings. I mean, they couldn't their experiences. Of where they're living, Maud and Marion couldn't be further apart. They're they're incredibly different. But life ends very badly for for Maud. Her uncle was very unhappy about her her choice of of working in in uh, in sex work, and they'd had a, a number of run ins along the way. Clearly about her lifestyle, and he ends up going to the house one day and and shoots her and and kills her. And it's it's again. From that that unfortunate situation and, and unfortunate ending of her life, that we we can we find out these details about what her life was like and where she was living and and um, you know the the involvement of sex work, and, and probably that for Irish women was was a not uncommon experience of being involved in sex work. Um, work by Maureen Fitzgerald, you know, she says what's what's interesting all these millions of remittances that are sent home, probably a good chunk of them are coming from sex work, but of course families back in Ireland probably never had any any sense that that was the, the situation at all. Many women, for one reason or another, found themselves as lone parents in the United States. Unmarried mothers were vilified 
back in Ireland through the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And this stigma of women who fell pregnant outside of marriage was a reason why some women left Ireland. However, as Leanne now explains, they faced similar prejudices in the US. That idea of the, the stigma and shame attached to unmarried mothers is something that we're quite familiar with in an Irish context. But for, for many Irish women in North America, they didn't find uh, a society that was somehow more welcoming or more supportive of their, their situation. And we have women who travel to North America pregnant, some using you know, emigration as a way to, to escape that stigma and shame at home, many expecting the father of their child to follow them. And, and many been very disappointed because that man was never coming and never had any intention of coming often, um, but, but saw this as a, a way to remove a problem from Ireland too. But Rosie Quinn's story is probably very typical as well of, of what, what many Irish girls find themselves in. She emigrates as a teenager and she ends up working in a hotel in New York. She met a man who was a, a soldier. They had a relationship. She became pregnant. Now, we, we don't know whether or not he necessarily knew that, that she'd become pregnant, but she's clearly on her own whenever we we come across her story and, and find out about her. And she kept her pregnancy a secret. She then left work to give birth, not, not telling anybody. Nobody knew what was sort of happening. And she left the hospital with a baby on her own, no support network, no money, tried to get charities to help her. As she tells, told the story afterwards, she couldn't find anywhere where she could go. She couldn't find anywhere to leave the baby. And she said she found herself in Central Park by the lake and she was considering throwing herself and the baby into the lake. But her story is that she, the baby fell from her arms and the baby very sadly drowned. And Rosie clearly didn't know what to do. So she went back to, to work and she carried on working. And it's in work in the hotel where she's then arrested the baby was found and, and traced back from its clothes, traced back to her. And again, you know, we find out about these cases often, not necessarily through the fact that they're reported in the papers, but this was again through um, a, a clemency appeal for her to be to be pardoned. Because working, living in the hotel was a, a quite a famous general, a man called Charles Furlong, who was a long-term resident of the Fifth Avenue Hotel where she worked. And the other staff, when Rosie was arrested, the other staff came to him and appealed that he would help Rosie, that he would try and get um, get her 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 pardoned. And he he does. He becomes involved. He contacts the jury. He, he's got an awful lot of political connections and he uses all of those to try and generate support for her case. And you see the public writing in as well. And again, they're very often people writing letters saying this poor Irish girl who's on her own. She's got nobody helping her. And again, that would we can see that for many Irish women, they were, as Elaine talked about, the travelling emigrating very young, often on their own without support networks. So finding themselves pregnant and unmarried, there was nobody to help or nobody to offer any any support. Um, and you get these sort of very unfortunate situations then occurring. But Rosie Quinn was pardoned and, and she leaves the sort of then quite celebrated in the newspapers when she leaves with the prison with, with Charles Furlong. And as, as far as we know, she then leaves New York and, and goes west. And we couldn't trace what happened to her, but you know, her situation and the outcome was was much, much better than it would have been for, for many other Irish women in similar situations. Cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy, and BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. As our conversation continued, I wondered if Irish people brought this social conservatism that shaped life in Ireland to the U.S., However, Leanne explained that these values were already integral to U.S. society at the time. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know that it's necessarily. I think a lot of those I, I, those values were, were, were already there. And part of that, you know, that sort of American society, which was very which was very conservative in, in lots of ways. So those those values and, and the, again, the people who are you know, running the various uh, reformatories and reform societies are coming from that. I suppose that wasp background in America. So those values are already there. They they line up again, you know, in, in very similar ways with a lot of the the sort of attitudes back in Ireland about about women and about unmarried mothers and about all of those aspects relating to to sexuality and behaviour. But I think it's more a meeting of of ideals rather than a, a kind of somehow that they they necessarily exported. And they brought those values often with them. But I think. For those things, they matched up with what was found in America. And again, it wasn't, I think, where sometimes there was maybe an expectation that you would be able to, perhaps in the anonymity of a city, that you would be able to, to escape and that you would be people wouldn't know about your story. And while that might have been true, it also meant that though that you lacked the support networks or any kind of help or any sort of where perhaps, you know, that married families could have, have ensured that a marriage took place or that... Mm-hmm. You know, things that that wasn't present in, in those large American cities when you were you were on your own and away from families. 
Of all the cases Leanne and Elaine shared, it was the story of Ellen Nagel that took me aback most. As Elaine explains, she was convicted of being, and I quote, a stubborn child. There was actually such a thing under Massachusetts law at the time, although hard to believe this was a crime. Elaine explains this by introducing Ellen Nagel. So Ellen Nagel, she, her parents emigrated first and the children then were left behind with relatives. And again, that kind of shows that um, survival strategies, you know, the idea was that the parents were going to emigrate, they were going to set up home and then they would send for their children. So they do and the, the children follow, they come um, a few months later. So Ellen is growing up in Boston, in Boston, South End. And, you know, this we see this idea of the, the city as a threat Two young girls come out quite strongly and Boston South End is not really seen as the ideal place to be raising girls. There's, you know, all sorts of um, drinking going on. There's uh, brothels, there's fortune telling all um, kind of in this, this area. So around 1902, she's known to, to have been obsessed with the theatre and she runs away or she's, you know, she's kind of staying out late and her father has her arrested um, but then she runs away again the following year. And this time she's he has her. Um, so she was on probation and this time he has her arrested and she goes to prison for 12 months. So you kind of think in those situations that. That's nearly like the, the family is destroyed, you know, having kind of given up a, a teenager and kind of sent her to prison. But but she returns to the family fold. Um, and the, the charge of stubbornness was really a way to keep girls in line. Now, boys could be charged with this as well, but they didn't tend to be because the idea is that it's about preventing girls taking the wrong path. So it's really like this kind of like moral policing, really. And the fear that, you know, Ellen Nagel as like a, she's running away from home. She, she's unchaperoned. She's into the theatre. These are this isn't a suitable path for her to be taken. And, and the safest thing is, we'll put her into a prison where she's going to be reformed, she'll be rehabilitated and she'll she'll come back out. A, a, you know, this idea of like a, quote, proper woman. Towards the end of our interview, Leanne explored how poverty and marginalisation saw many women increasingly turned to alcohol. This could lead to a cycle of arrest and imprisonment as they were increasingly marginalised. Leanne began exploring this topic with the story of several women who found themselves before a court in Toronto in Canada in 1865. This is a, a, a bit really sort of intriguing intergenerational group that we see in, in Toronto in 1865. And um, clearly in, in 1865, the Toronto Globe has got uh, somebody who's got a, a very creative I think is very engaged in their, their creative writing when they're describing what's happening in the court and you get it these very vivid descriptions, particularly about a lot of a lot of these these women and Irish women who appear in, in the court. And you know, it goes from 80-year-old Margaret McCormick, who's no relation of mine, I don't think, who's laughing and kind of, you know, thinks the whole thing's a big joke. And she's been nudged by a 20-year-old woman called Julia Tracy who's trying to get her to keep quiet. And there are other women who are who are shouting about what's on the menu in, in the jail that day. And you can see it's a whole group who are, who've been here a lot. They've, they're in and out of, of prison. Um, this is a kind of regular experience for them. And, and the group as well is described as being stargazers. So the idea that they're probably involved in sex work. And I mean, it's unlikely that they were all involved in sex work, but or some of them were, or they were sort of assumed to have been or had some, some kind of reputation. And they're arrested outside in army barracks. And, and probably again, some of them may have been drunk, maybe not all of them, but they're making a, a nuisance of themselves. They're they're causing they're they've been disruptive. They're they're causing a, a making a lot of a lot of noise. 
And this, a group of women like this were very likely to be arrested. They were an easy arrest. It was sort of easy to pick up these women sort of off the streets as well. Um, and we do see those groups of Irish women and large groups of Irish women all being arrested together for sort of alcohol-related offences. And for many of them, you know, alcohol's cheaper in North America than it would have been in Ireland. It's easier to get to get hold of. And the lack of either inside space to 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 drink poor housing or no housing, many of these women that we see are probably homeless. Uh, and often for, for some of them, being in, in prison was a, was a, was better than, than being, being on the streets. And they're not welcome in the kind of male saloons and, and those sort of spaces either. So they're they're on the street, they're visible, and, and that's where they're coming to the attention of the authorities uh, as well. And part of this, I think, ties in with that stereotype then of the kind of drunken Irish, where when they're appearing in court, there is an expectation that they probably are guilty of, of what of what they've been doing. And you see these women often become becoming known as rounders so that they're going round and round nearly in a revolving door of going of, um, you know, being arrested, going to court, going to prison for a few days, being released again, being rearrested again. So the idea then that's a vicious cycle of poverty, of alcohol, and these women are just sort of in and, in and out of prison and, and you know, they're, they're very aware that the Irish women are making up, you know, and for us, the, the numbers of, of Irish women who are arrested for alcohol offences, this makes up the vast proportion of arrests and of crimes that women are arrested for. So so it it, it is a it is a big issue and a, a big problem. But again, it's that sort of re-arrest and, and people getting a reputation and being easy for, for I think, for the police to, to pick them up and to try and clear areas that these are easy arrests to make as well. To finish, Elaine and Leanne explained where the project is now. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, they released a podcast, which is absolutely amazing, but there's also now a book and an exhibition. Our book has just been published as well. So we've been working on the book for years at this stage, um, but it's called Bad Bridget, Crime, Mayhem and the Lives of Irish Emigrant Women. And we've got um, more than 200 cases mentioned in that book as well. And we also developed an exhibition at National Museums NI at the Ulster American Folk Park in Oma. So we have used some of our case studies and we've brought in author Jan Carson has written the text for it. And there's the Tasha Marks, who has developed some smells as well. So you can some some lovely smells of the, the fun fair um, in, in Boston and then some horrible smells of maybe what some of those kind of poor houses or some of those kind of and poverty-stricken areas would have smelt like. We've got illustrations by Fiona, Fiona McDonald, who has, uh, yeah, so Fiona McDonald drew these um, gorgeous graphic images of kind of imagining what some of the um, the Bad Bridges would have, have looked like. So it opened uh, last April and it will be in situ for two years. There are links to the Bad Bridget book and the podcast in the show notes below. I want to thank Leanne and Elaine for their time. It was really great to interview the people behind the podcast I really loved. All that's left for me to do now is to remind you to subscribe to the show if you haven't already. I'll be back next week with some brand new content. Until then, Sloan.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.